If you have Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. And just to remind you what we're doing in the weeks leading up to Easter is we're looking at a series of sermons, kind of snapshots out of Luke's Gospel on encountering Jesus. And so we're looking at various aspects of Jesus' person and work culminating in his death and resurrection. We're looking at the humanity of Jesus. We saw Jesus in the wilderness last week where he will fight for us. This morning we are looking at the transfiguration of Jesus where we get a preview of glory. And we're going to be looking at topics like grace and judgment and his entering into his city on Palm Sunday, all leading up to Holy Week and Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and culminating in Easter Sunday. We are in Luke chapter 9 this morning looking at the transfiguration of Jesus, beginning at verse 28, and I will read down to verse 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Well, how many of us enjoy going to movies? I know I do. Here's one of my regrets so far in my almost two years living here. I can't believe it. I'm embarrassed to admit this. I haven't made it up to the movie theater yet. Evie and I drive past, and we go, we still have to get to the movie theater and see a movie in there. Because we do love going to the movies. So picture the scene. You're sitting there, and you're at the movie, and of course, if you're Jeff, that means you have your big tub of popcorn, buttered, of course, you're eating your popcorn, you're drinking your soda, you're getting ready for whatever is showing, and what's the very first thing that comes on the screen? Not the commercials, by the way. The previews, right? When is the next Star Wars movie, or whatever movie, or whatever, the next blockbuster on Christmas Day or summertime coming out? And you know how previews work. We see them all the time. They're designed to get you excited, build up anticipation and hope in what is coming in the future. So now look at this passage with me. In this passage, commonly known as the Transfiguration, 
Jesus is giving Peter, James, and John the ultimate preview. Because this isn't a preview of a movie. This is a preview of the end of history. This is a preview of consummated glory. Of the end of all things. He is, he is inviting them to come into a deeper inner reality of what God is up to. Of the inner reality of the kingdom. A preview of future glory. In order to practically cultivate the discipline of hope in their life. Thus, it's the hope of glory. You know how you felt when you see a preview? Everyone's talking about it. You're circling the date. The goal is to get you to anticipate, to encourage, to build your hope for what is coming so that that hope can sustain you in the present. Jesus is doing that here for his disciples. For Peter, James, and John, he's giving them this preview of consummated glory in order to sustain them, to encourage them, to give them hope to what they will soon be facing. Jesus knows they're about to face very, very difficult and trying times. We know we face a dangerous, insecure world. What is it that strengthens us in the face of that? What is it that compels us to lead honest, authentic, and yet courageous lives. Friends, it's the hope of glory. It's the hope of glory that sustains us for what we have to face. So what do we learn from this preview of glory? Two simple points. Jesus here will give them a revelation of glory, and then he will give them an explanation of glory. Okay, look with me at verse 28. Look at the text. Now, about eight days after these sayings. Now, what were these sayings? These were the sayings that says, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For he who wants to save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And now, eight days after these sayings, where Jesus knows where he's headed, and he's preparing the disciples for where they're headed, do you think they really had a clue what this take up your cross daily means? That's kind of cryptic. To follow Jesus means you have to die daily? And Jesus says, yes. Now Jesus is preparing them. Eight days later, they go up on the mountain. Mountain is very significant. All of this is Exodus language. And as he's praying, the appearance of his face was altered. So here comes, he's peeling back the curtain. The preview is beginning. His clothing becomes dazzling white, a picture of holiness, purity, power. And behold, two men were talking with him. Talking with him means that our future is not just non-material, it must be physical as well. And here's Moses and Elijah appearing in glory as well. So in other words, consummated glory. Our future is one of glory. And they spoke of his departure, and departure there is actually the Greek word for exodus. So Jesus was about to go through an exodus himself to lead us in a new exodus. 
speaking about what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And it says, And Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. They must have had this kind of day, and it must have been daylight savings time for them as well or something. Because don't we... See, I have to throw that in every once in a while. I don't want you to be heavy with sleep as I give this. They're heavy with sleep. Their eyes weren't open yet to reality. And it says, But when they became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, and, and I have to always add here, I love Peter. He just encourages me so much. Because Peter messes up all the time, and I'm going, oh, you are such a help to Jeff Birch. Gives me such freedom in doing what I do. Peter says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Luke says, not knowing what he said. Don't you love that? Commentators provide the insight here that the transfiguration functions in the gospel much like the end of Isaiah 52 functions in relation to Isaiah 53. In other words, Isaiah 52 is a prelude for the suffering servant narrative of Isaiah 53 just like here, this is a prelude for what's about to happen to Jesus. So listen to the end of Isaiah 52. Isaiah writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. What is Isaiah talking about here? He is promising the servant's exaltation. Kings' mouths will be shut. Emperors will be silent. Nations will be sprinkled. The servant will act wisely. The plan of redemption will succeed. The gates of hell will not prevail against the plan, the sovereignty, and the kingdom of God. But first, something has to happen. Because look what follows in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, in other words, you have here a kind of outline for the gospel. You have the mission of Jesus the King, what Jesus came to accomplish and do, which Luke, by the way, describes interestingly enough in verses 30 and 31 as Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah about his departure. He is speaking literally about his exodus, which he will accomplish at Jerusalem. What will Jesus do in Jerusalem? He will die on a cross.
for the sins of his people. And what does death bring? It brings discouragement, disillusionment, despair, loss, confusion. And so how does the transfiguration function? It functions to give the disciples hope as this mission unfolds. A mission which will defeat evil, but in the most unexpected way possible and imaginable. It will defeat evil by enduring and suffering through the worst that evil can throw at you. Jesus knows the disciples are going to need encouragement. They will need hope. So what does Jesus give them? He gives them this preview. He's inviting them in in order to give them hope. And he's inviting them in to see what? His exaltation, his ultimate kingship, his victory, his glory that Isaiah promised would be fulfilled by the Lord's suffering servant. It's like C.S. Lewis said, speaking of the hope of heaven, of eternity, of our future, heaven attained, once attained, will work backwards and turn even agony into glory. Friends, many of us sitting here today are suffering and going through agony. And friends, that is real. The pain is real. But I do pray we know this hope that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even our agony into a glory. Jesus knew the disciples would need this. Jesus knows we need this today. We need to know that even our agony, even our disillusionment, even our confusion, even our pain will be turned into a glory. That's why his love surpasses knowledge. That's why we need strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. His love is a supernatural force, a power, and a weapon that you can't just understand as a proposition. It is a force we're called to enter into to sustain us through the suffering and loss we go through today. We need the power and weapon of hope if we're going to live courageous, loving, compassionate lives in the face of inevitable suffering. Dan Allender put it this way. He said, Biblical hope is substantial faith regarding the future. Hope is the dream of shalom, the anticipation of joy that comes through us and prompts us to rise and to rebuild, to envision and risk for what is not yet. Hope takes the experience of loss and uses it as the raw material for writing a new and unexpected story. You realize we were built for shalom? We were not built for this world. We were built for shalom. We were built for ultimate wholeness. We were built for wholeness and integration spiritually, physically, culturally, relationally, emotionally, intellectually, in every dimension. And this is what we aspire to be about as a church. This is what LOPC 2.0 is all about. To give a taste of shalom to Lake Oconee. Allender writes that hope leads us to envision and risk for what is not yet, to write a new and unexpected story. 
Don't you want to be a part of God writing a new and unexpected story for Lake Oconee? We need that. And of course, they do not yet understand the significance of the meaning of all of this. They see with Jesus, they see Elijah and, and Elijah and Moses, and here's Peter, of course, not knowing the significance, misunderstanding the significance of the situation, assuming, as we're reminded by commentators and scholars, that the time of this second exodus is totally fulfilled. The goal of the promised land has been realized. Peter's anxious like we are for the promised glory to be now. And it's okay. Of course we want glory now. We want heaven now. But there's one thing missing, and you can't bypass it, and that's suffering. Exaltation, which is what the transfiguration is revealing, is inseparably bound up with Jesus' humiliation, and you cannot escape that. Thus, the revelation of glory leads to his explanation of glory. As we look at the text, he says, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Remember, this is the second time now that a voice has been heard giving approval and affirmation of Jesus. The first was at Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit descended on him like a dove, anointing him for his work. And the voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now the text is telling us that a cloud overshadowed them, and this is not an insignificant detail. And the voice from the cloud is significant, because here is the clear allusion to the glory cloud from the Exodus, where in Exodus 24 we read of Moses going up on the mountain, the cloud covering the mountain, the glory of the Lord dwelling on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covering it for six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. On Mount Sinai, God came down. God revealed his presence, his beauty, his majesty, his glory in a cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory. And now, as Tim Keller says, in a head-snapping twist, Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun, but Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus doesn't point to the glory of God as Eliza, Moses, and every other prophet had done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. And so the voice from the cloud says, this is the one. This is my son, the Messiah, the chosen one. Listen to him. Our entire life, our present and our future is bound up, depends on completely to listening to Jesus. So what do we do with all of this? What does it mean to listen to Jesus? How do we begin to apply this? See, remember the transfiguration is a preview of glory which speaks of the necessity along with the affirmation from the Father of the Son's mission to restore the world, to renovate all things, comprehensive renewal. 
through Jesus' death, resurrection, and subsequent ascension into glory. The affirmation from the Father, which he also received at his baptism, from the glory cloud, what did it do for Jesus? It prepared and fortified him for the task ahead. It prepared and strengthened him. It fortified him for him accomplishing the mission. And guess what it does for us? It is the affirmation, the love, and the approval of the Father that prepares and fortifies us as we seek to live faithfully in the world. In other words, it is the love and approval, the affirmation of God that strengthens and prepares. If it prepares Jesus for the task that lays before him, it prepares us. He is strengthened by love, by affirmation, by encouragement. The answer is a living, powerful hope. See, we need to embrace and cultivate what Jesus has done for us. Probably the most important thing and yet the hardest thing for us to do is to remember each and every day our acceptance in Christ. There's a theologian by the name of Richard Lovelace who wrote at the outset of each day, we need to recall and remember that we are accepted in Jesus Christ. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are not alone, and we have spiritual authority in Christ. That's the only thing that's going to fortify us to face our future. We have to learn to embrace and cultivate what Jesus has done for us. See, this mission that he's describing, the glory that he's previewing, it is for us. That he died for you that He was raised for you, that He has ascended for you, that He is glorified for you, that He intercedes for you, that He lives for you. His very life and ministry is bound up with ours. We never do anything on our own. We have died and our lives are hid with Christ. His gl this glory is for us. We need to cultivate that. We need to experience that. That's why the Lord's table is so important. We feed, we eat and drink from what Jesus has done for you. Do this in remembrance of me does not mean, oh, I forgot where I put my car keys. It means I need to be renewed in what Jesus has done for me. The reason Jesus gave us the table is so that we could have forgiveness acceptance, approval, affirmation, and hope that we can taste. He wants it to be experienced by us. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him.